0: What I'm going to try here uh, is something, some, some articulation, but it's, I'm not sure I will produce enough articulation, I hope so. But the, the way I wanted to do it is to slowly build up some field of thought as it unfolds drawing from a collection of materials, namely um, a collection of notes. And then what I did to prepare this was some kind of an archaeology of my notes and annotate the notes. And I organized it uh, across three different fields or different um, zones of thought. What I would like to produce, but I don't know if I'm going to be strict about it, because when I start, and I diverge into different places and I cannot really control myself, is um, that I um, go layer by layer, and that I distribute the materials in a way that I don't uh, occupy linearly each uh, space of thought. You could also call them... Chapters, if this was a book, but it's not. Uh, And I will go around and go layer by layer because I'm really interested in this movement of producing a field of resonances and because the issues that I would like to uh, tackle are really very paradoxical. They have a lot of, uh, there's a lot of promising uh, aspects about it. But also a lot of things to be critical about, and they belong to the same, to the same fields, or they inhabit uh, the same fields of our lives. Well, they they mix. We cannot really separate them. We keep falling into one or the other through using the same terms. Um, so another thing, still, as an introductory uh, note, is. Um, This is not exactly, I think this is a lecture, right? Uh, It's not intended as a performance lecture as such. Of course, uh, any discursive act is performative in the sense that it always produces uh, reality effects. It doesn't only uh, represent or refer to something, to some issue, but it does things. When it is uttered. So, it is in any case, this is a collection of performative, uh, discursive acts. But it's not something that I'm specifically trying, it's just something that I cannot escape. So this is one of the fields. I also didn't really choose the colors. It was just the paper that I had left from last Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so this... This one, um, each each of the spaces has an image uh, that helps for me to identify them. But it also comes from a very deep conviction that when you are uh, formulating thoughts and articulating issues, uh, it really helps to build some field and to feel very literally what it is. The, the fact that uh, when you use language, you always, it falls somewhere uh, and it builds some kind of landscape and it always always emerges from some kind of milieu. It's not something that uh, happens and unfolds abstractly, but that really crea- creates places and comes from places and affects places. And this is a half fictional way of putting it in a very literal way. Uh, well, this is an image from September last year, and it's from the balcony. And this is this I don't know how you say it in English actually, the it's badminton um, rackets, Racquet. Racquet. racket, I was thinking. And there's a small box with cards and a pair. So it's a mix of organic things with, a, with inanimate matters. And also this, for me, um, the boxes as containers of materials uh, also work as some kind of uh, assisting uh, dispositives because they contain things that can help me glue things and connect things to other things, really threads these kind of things. Um, and the badminton is, for me, one image of this tangle and also dialogue uh, or discourse as, uh, as it is, if we think etymologically, as really this, uh, what it is, a movement from one place to the other, right? Um, so, uh, it also has a name, Originally, it was a, a, a French title which is a bit difficult to translate and it's called Poirot Entre Boites. It's hang out, uh, no, not hang out, hang about, hang around uh, my boxes, the boxes where I uh, keep these materials that help me think. Um, and this is where... Uh, I'll try to think the side of uh, the performative turns that have been happening in dance um, throughout the 20th century. But we'll go back to that one. Um, This one is of another kind. It will be here. And it's some kind of uh, uh, storytelling dispositive. Um, And the image is from the botanic garden, uh, from the tropical botanic garden in Lisbon. And there's this statue of a dog turning the face. And this is a rubber tree. And... I connect this very literally with a notion of inter-inanimation that I will uh, connect through uh, um, telling you the story. or the, it's, it's a fact that uh, Rebecca Schneider, as a, a performance studies scholar, went to visit some caves in France and she was dealing with this notion of inter-inanimation Uh, to complicate the notion of the trace in relation to the notion of the live, what is live, what is here and now, uh, and what is supposedly past. And it's a whole system, or thought about call and response, and you can start imagining right away from, as yes, a way uh, of connecting, well, this tangle between uh, past and present, or how, uh, what it is to think the the past in the present, uh, what kind of performance is that, and what it does to history making. Light pink. This is the most complicated one for me. Is the one where I want to dispose uh, all this issue of the... Well, this compulsion to perform or this performance age where so it seems we are living and not only the... The arts or the performing arts, uh, but all the other fields of society, politics, and the economy, really identifying with the notion of performance in many different scary ways. There's also an image. This is a tiger, about to jump. I don't know what is the material he's made of, but I think it's um, plastic. I don't know. This was up. <laughs> I want it to be plastic, because it really looked like plastic. No, it looks completely different. And this is uh, It's uh, up. This was, I looked up, all of a sudden, And there was this tiger, it's a it was a high wall and there is some publicity here that is unreadable, you can only see how laney. And it seems that it's going to jump on you. Now just a small reminder that this Whatever I propose here on whatever we may discuss about well, for me, it will always remain uh, This is a global geography of a given brain it's a bit of a complicated formulation that sounded better in french it's it's from <laughs> Jeographie mondiale dans cerveau it's from um, a French director film director Michel Gondry and I took this from one Air France magazine well sometimes they have really interesting uh, interviews and he was he had a system of mapping his own brain and imagine it and he imagines it always as something that of course it's something situated and local and singular and personal, but of course it is always in connection with, um, with some larger history, right? So it is. you can say it is as large as a global brain, each of us, <laughs> but uh, it's always situated... This is in the middle. Well, I don't know if uh, maybe I, it's useful to recall the the text of the proposal. That is, uh on to think the relation between history and uh, dance, but through this, through all a whole a uh, vocabulary of performance and performativity that is really proliferating. I don't know if you have the same sense of this, but uh, we'll see. Well, and one, one, one of the things, first of all, that I'm going to place here, and that helps... Uh, Making a separation or differentiating um, the thing that we are most connected with, I think here in this specific context, as performance makers, many of you, uh, is that this uh, performance I'm talking about is not only an artistic performance, but really, broadly speaking, uh, performance in the sense that it always has that it also has in uh, economy which is efficacy, um, the execution of some task uh, efficiently, right? And so this is something that, uh, if we go back to a book uh, written by um, John McKenzie that you may know, uh, which was called Performing a Performance or Else, Uh, From 2001, so this is one of the first reflections about the fact that performance is double, the notion of performance, there is this doubleness, right? You can think of performance as organizational performance, as you have in in many different planes of culture, and if you think about enterprises, that's that. Or also in, uh, in the cultural industry, There's a lot of um, organizational performance. And then also cultural performances, the things that we do every day because we learn how to do them. And that's a performance level that we do constantly in the most simple things that we do. So this doubleness of, of performance referring to another doubleness, which is the conjunction in performance of repetition and transformation something about some beforeness, something that you already incorporated, sometimes consciously, many times not consciously. And then uh, you do it again and again. And that's the performativity of that uh, general performance of the everyday. Uh, so going back to the doubleness of performance. Uh, so, and then there's artistic performance. Uh, So that's why the the notion is um, tricky and lovely and (laughs) uh, it's something really to think about right now because if you think of the old form of reasoning, the dominant form of reasoning of the uh, current neoliberalism, well if this was a movie I think the the main character would be really the self-performing subject that we, we are constantly um um incited to perform ourselves the best that we can um I don't know if you feel this as well, but I see it everywhere this kind of um of course I'm drawing from this book from Andrea Lepecchi by andre Lobecchi uh And it also, this is something that also got very much in my body um, as from an ad, publicity ad that I was confronted with in the public space and with the um, subway uh, turn tile but to get in. I had to touch that ad that was glued there and that said endures, we trust. So, and this is something that really uh, gives me some kind of itching and some irritation and some confusion because I think, well, in my field of uh, activity, uh, when it comes to knowledge production, uh, we keep asserting and reminding one another, okay, this is... Whatever knowledge that we are uh, composing, it's, it's a doing. It should stay in this state of making and never become really a given knowledge. And a lot of uh, contexts in performance also, where people are really very concerned about keeping things at the state of, this is a doing, we are not going to the step of uh, having a finished object, right? And so this is really confusing that this this accent, this uh, no, I said, no, you don't say accent. This underlining the fact, the doing itself has become his, has been appropriated by uh, the work market because this is this is really uh, this is an ad of um, advertisement platform for freelance workers that are paid $5, if they, uh, they show a video of something that they invented or transformed into business. and um, Well, I have the ad, it's just 1 minute 50. I think you don't really need to, to see the images, uh, just hearing the, the kind of things that they say uh, can be interesting.
1: Got an idea? Isn't that cute? My little sister has ideas. You? You have a business to build. So, um, hang on, mom. So, get a logo. Make a website. Market it. Promote it. Promote the out of it. Cancel the brainstorm. The only one who can do this is you and your power to get it done. So I can do it? Pitch it to your mom. Pitch it to your ex. Pitch it to your roommate. Pitch it to anyone who will listen. But definitely don't pitch it to these guys. Woo the customer. Schmooze the customer. Oh, and this guy? Just ignore him. Beat the gurus. Beat the trust fund kids. Beat the tech bros. Nice scooter, yo. Change the business. Change the industry. Change everything. And while you're at it, save the rhinos. Above all, and this is important, do.
0: Because thinking big is still just the thinking. Do. So that's, that's the uh, banner in Doers we Trust." And then there were a lot of other videos going in the public space: uh, "Be a doer. Be a Doer." Um, and then I found there was um, an article in The New Yorker um, that was, of course, criticizing this ad, and the title is "The Gig." economy so there's really a gig economy going okay this is the United States of course but what's happening there in a uh, in a already caricatural way is ongoing in Europe as well Uh, just not so shamelessly uh, announced everywhere and then one of the one of the ads uh, that is also uh, hanging at the uh, subway station it says, "It's a woman looking really cool, and that says, "You eat coffee for lunch. You follow through, and you follow through on. you follow, you follow through on. You follow through on your follow-through. <laughs> sleep deprivation, sleep deprivation is your drug of choice. You might be a doer. So that's the kind of person you So, be happy. Um, and then in another video, a female voiceover urges doers to always be available, to think about beating the trust fund kids and to pitch themselves to everyone they see, including their dentist. I think this that was something that uh, was there and that we were talking about with uh, Moatis at breakfast. So this is the jargon through which the essentially cannibalistic nature of the gig economy is dressed up as aesthetic, is becoming an aesthetic. Let's make a step to the side of dance, (coughs) to get some change. And one thing that I wanted to remind, which it's funny, maybe you don't think of it anymore, but very recently uh, there were a lot of uh, stereotypes connected with dance and with the notion of ephemerality, dance as disappearance, as the poor thing that doesn't leave any traces behind. And there was a lot of mourning and complaining from the poor dance. There's the little poor sister. And it's true historically in terms of uh, the art system. Dance had to... It was only throughout the 20th century that it really asserted itself as a, as an autonomous form of art. And... And then there came all the romanticizing and the fetishizing about the fact that dance has this dance has this interesting capacity of existing through disappearance. So at a certain point, it seemed that it would be a nice way or an effective way to uh, resist commodification. Um, so to not to escape the transformation in uh, in a market object. So it didn't really work that way, <laughs> but there was across the eighties <laughs> you wanted to say something you can interrupt what's what <laughs> oh that it comes it's it comes from a long way I'm just focusing on the eighties to situate in a um not so far and uh, not so close, but also because, of course, I'm uh, looking at this from the perspective of performance studies, and there was this um, point of reference to think performance and the dance performance and other artistic performances as um, ephemeral. And that was, it was so strong as a concept to define the field that there were some scholars from other. Departments making jokes about the Department of Performance Studies uh, that it should they should rename <laughs> the, the department into Department of Ephemerality. <laughs> That's why I was talking about the 80s because throughout the 80s it intensified and then towards the end of the 90s and later there were there was strong critique. Uh, Complexifying the, this notion of disappearance because there is no dance without infrastructures and cultural infrastructures. If we think about uh, festivals and so on, it's structures that are generated by uh, by dance, <laughs> right? So there's a lot of other dispositives, very palpable, that co-compose dance. Um, and even if, in terms of uh, presentation format, there is a time limit, of course, the bodies go around and talk, and there are a lot of traces. Um, yeah, but this, this has, so th- there has been a paradigm shift uh, that we can really very clearly point to. Uh, if we hadn't anything else, we could just use. Our mailboxes as a symptom symptomatologist or something, because the the names of the events that get announced and that you receive are, uh, for example, with the accent in the afterlives of dance and not so much in the moment of where it happens and disappears supposedly, but in um, its afterlives. Well, sometimes I print these kind of things there was this afterlives, the persistence of performance. So it's not the disappearance of performance anymore, it's the persistence of of performance. And this, I think, well, this residency and the symposium that you organized is part of this move towards a renewed interest in history and archives in dance. And it's something that also produced or at least co-produced also a performative shift in the way that archive practices have now to understand themselves although there is still the the dominant way going on as well it will never disappear but there are uh, different ways of conceiving of the archive now as really utterly performative and it's as Rebecca Schneider says, it's been the deepest secret of the archive is that it actually has a performative basis. Uh, so the thing is that politically um, it's still very much about... Uh, it's not about disappearance or not disappearance, or presence or absence. <laughs> it's really about location, about being... Um, being given a location, certain remains are given uh, the right to remain officially uh, to be validated as the official history. So that's the difference, it's really a matter, it's a geographic matter, so to say. But I'd like to go back to um, to recall some of these some of these clichés <laughs> uh, that maybe still resonate in something that you know, or s- when you started dancing, or because I know that when I started doing research on dance, and I wanted to do research on uh, the sensation and the, the precept- perception system in movement, and I had a lot of fantasies about dance being the 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 right place uh, to. F- find the functioning of sensation, whereas I, once I started to research, of course I started thinking, no way, it's something that you can find at work in many other activities, and you have to broaden your research. But And I think many of them are still, uh, at least at the level of the common sense, uh, still alive and kicking, and things that are connected with, uh, with dance, apart from authenticity, of course, because body feels like it's closer to some kind of truth, uh, love, grace, the unsayable, so it's mm, often put as an opposite of uh, language. And this thing that dance would be the art of the sensorial, and of sensibility par excellence Um, and that its proper place would be the human body. Maybe it's not, (laughs) not only. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, it would be a place of production of supposedly pre-linguistic authenticity. It would be continuous movement. It would always appear as a visibly moving body, uh, expressing truths drawn directly from its deeper being. So dance would be the art that distinguishes from all the others. And I think this is, there is something of this dance having become the, the paradigm of all the arts because it combines now interdisciplinarity with, um, with this capacity to implicate the body in its own doing and of course this thing of this paradoxical mode of being that was uh, called as uh, the thing that as soon as it appears it disappears it only exists when it disappears um, this kind of formulations and of course in relation to history and the archive it was Uh, imagined and it still is imagined as to a certain extent as something opposite something that happens in the now whereas history and archives and memory are uh, operational sites that have to do with the past so I'm not saying it is like this I would never say something like that or how things are, <laughs> but it's uh, it's ideas that are still still circulating around. Um, and then I would like to tell some small, small vignette, a small part of my my dance history uh, that happened through this uh, this ex- tension or transformation of the understanding and practice of dance that I'm trying to locate here Uh, and that I like to call as the extension of dance to its sides to its besides and one of the things that happened uh, across the 90s was the connection between dance and dramaturgy and the affair of dance with theory, with critical theory. Uh, So that's all uh, connections that started to happen between people collaborating and so on. And one of the really important things was this uh, connection between dance and dramaturgy. And... uh, Well, I still remember the the first time that uh, uh, that I worked with a choreographer. It was because he was looking for somebody from philosophy or from philosophy of language or some kind of uh, support to articulate uh, something like a mental fi- the mental field of dance, which is also, well, the mental field as part of the body, of course. Uh, and I remember this call, still <laughs> one of these uh, old telephones, you know, really, uh, this, the thing. <laughs> And that I, I remember exactly how he was explaining to me uh, that we would work on this imaginary of dance, and that he heard he had heard around that people were starting to call uh, this kind of uh, collaboration or this kind of person a dramaturg for that period of uh, dance composition. Uh, yeah, I remember. I remember, I had no clue about what I was supposed to do, uh, <laughs> uh, but we could think together. Um, this is just an, an afterwards, in retrospective, that you start to be able to tell what was happening at that time and what you were part of. Right. So uh, by then, I didn't know things were happening. Um, there are many people in my generation that had similar similar stories with dance coming from the field of uh, philosophy or performance studies or others other related fields and so one one uh, short uh, not short this is a short memory but the piece was longer that i i saw in 2003 in berlin and it it was i think it was the first the first uh Proposal from the family of lecture performance that where I really felt oh, this is my home. <laughs> and uh, this was a, um, a lecture performance by Andre Lepecchi uh, with Eleonora Fabian. And it was called Wording. So it was doing things with words. Um, and I saw it again then in, in Paris in 2005. And it, it's been around until 2012 in many different places, and it really unfolds as a choreography of this course. It is uh, the two um, performers, lecturers, are placed in a diagonal. In a, I, I have no idea if it was as big as this space, but it was one small table there and one small table there, and they had different pieces of text that they were just uh, reading, like in this racket movement and that's, that's where, uh, if this had been prepared correctly, I mean these boxes where there are things like uh, these ones and then uh, but the day before traveling here I was going to grab my <laughs> rackets and I couldn't find them because they were in my other working place so I just uh, have this to mark the this this kind of thing that is really nice to do when you're telling this memory that is that you play and you go and you play or you ask somebody to play. Um, so and they were they were doing this uh, alternated reading. It was nothing. Spe- the text was. Of course, very uh, appealing about uh, uh, confusing the notion of language with tongue that you can do in English and in some other languages. It's uh, more difficult, but you have these two different terms. And at some point, uh, one of them, I don't remember if it was Andrea or Eleonora, stood up and went to the other extremity. And um, they, we started to hear this sticky, uh, this sound of uh, saliva, and, and um, well, the, the room was very full, and some of us couldn't really see what they were doing, but it was a French kiss, and uh, really against the microphone, <laughs> and it was kind of embarrassing and disgusting and lovely at the same time, and then it went for what seems a long, long while, and then it stopped, and then... Uh, the one that had moved, went back to the place and they continued. And this was the only uh, outstanding <laughs> uh, action that happened. Um, yeah, this is one memory of something, of my own. If I had to tell it, uh, I would start here, I think. And it's this turning point where you start to feel really that dance is becoming a very interdisciplinary uh well this this still refers to the ad indoors we trust it was one of their sayings get shit done don't waste time dreaming or imagining get it done What it used to be in God we trust. This is another American culture pearl. And this is actually an artwork by Rikrit Tiravania. I don't know how to read his name, it's always a problem. Maybe you know him. But yeah, fear, it's the soul. And in this, there is also one of these uh, announcements that I receive in my mailbox, which is really a good indicator of what's going on and the main tendencies in terms of issues that are being uh, dealt in many different knowledge and artistic uh, production fields. And this is a lecture by Bojana Sveitsch that I think many of you know, because she has been here, uh, she has been in Copenhagen um, not very long ago. And she put a lecture together under the title Aesthetic Individuals Perform in Sensual Capitalism. So there's a sensual capitalism going on. And (laughs) we're all becoming aesthetic individuals performing in this and this is terrible. I think uh, if when we start looking, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, but I try uh, not to contribute, not to be a performer of this general situation, but it's really hard. So I think it's time to use the third, the third space. <clears throat> And actually, nothing of uh, what I had imagined of these layers circulating so beautifully in my mind, not happening, because I'm too concentrated, too concerned about the uh, mental unfolding and not working. This is uh, this is something that I am projecting more dramaturgically as these layers being uh, set in this movement of circulation. Um, but nothing of what I imagined is happening. So, <laughs> failed performativity. Um, so this is a story of um, told by herself, and now a little bit theatri- theatralized. By uh, this is something of uh, trying to give some theatricality to theoretical texts um, that they can be told in a way that gives them another voice, as if somebody was telling something. And well, what happened when I read. This her description of her travel to the, the caves in France where there are these prehistorical pictures well, drawings and paintings of hands um, and actually when I read it I was already in this turning point concerning the notion of the trace um, because I think Like many of you, I grew up thinking of the trace and the remains or the index as evidence of something past. And I was taught that the past existed once and only once. I don't know about you. I no longer think that way, (laughs) of course. Uh, And I have been asking myself things like, Are my hands as much a remain as the walls that they may touch? If they are remains, of what are they remains? But it's a possible thread of thinking for me. So are my hands as past, although they are alive and kicking here, Are they as past as the monuments of this region, for example? And are these walls as live as we bodies, people, here? Um, And then one of the questions raised by Rebecca Schneider is what if the footstep is as much a remain as the footprint or the footprint as live as the foot is this imaginable somehow? that a footprint is as alive as the foot step? could be can I be a document? could I be a document of some kind? Well. Now her travel exactly. It was it took place in 2013. Uh, so Rebecca Schneider made this trip to France, and as she herself reported, she wanted to witness firsthand what is called negative handprints on a prehistoric cave. She wanted to ask about the hand as hail, hey. How is this, the gesture? No, it's not this. No, Hey! Right? Um, I was not being performative enough. Mm-hmm. Or more performance-like. Well, this, it's different. <laughs> uh, so she wanted to witness it directly. She wanted to experience that. She wanted to ask about the hand as hail... And about the duration of the live in the context of the iterable tracks of gesture, repeatable tracks of gesture, because she, she says, "Well, gestures are a primary uh, iteration instance. Yes, it's, it's something that can only happen through repetition. It comes from something that you've learned, that you've learned. That's how we know how to make gestures. And different cultures may have slightly different gestures. Right? So it's something that... Uh, it's like a choreography. Um, it's iterable techniques, techniques of repetition. Um, so how can one iteration, that is my hand, my hand reproducing this gesture that is there, painted when I raise it in a hail, how can it be understood in total temporal isolation from subsequent and previous iterations? That is, there is no way we can imagine one gesture in an isolated way. It comes from somewhere, and it somehow calls for a response as well, like this I mean, this um, trace painting in the cave uh, will always call for some response even if the person watching is not going to do the gesture but it will perform the gesture mentally and that's the way it works and so she says these repetitions necessarily jump they they confuse the notion of linear time and the separations between past and present and live and dead. Um, There's a jump in time, jump in space, a jump between bodies, past and present, um, and they all become themselves as gestures in repetition. And actually, repetition is always a transformation. There is no repetition without... Producing difference, and that's also the the most simple and clear and enlightening definition of performance. That's this combination of repetition and uh, transformation. So, as Rebecca was heading to France, she wondered if I make a Paleolithic hand, and if I say it's a first hand, let's play okay I'm making it. Uh, and I'm saying it's first-hand hand. I'm making it with a second hand. What would become first and second? This is getting really, really deli- d- delirant or delirious, or however you call it. Um, and then she asks, why would I be more alive, more there, in responding to... Um, or in recognizing the Paleolithic hand, why would I be more alive? Then the first hand is, was, or continues to be, actually, it continues to be there, right? (laughs) Um, And it's making me do this hail, be it mentally or physically. And so she says, okay, this is a difficult question. Um, If this hand is casting, say, a gesture into a temporal jump, so it's inviting uh, another, uh, uh, an upcoming hand uh, into a temporal jump. Uh, Who's going to legislate when that jump ends or where it lands? If you imagine all the visitors to the cave, and this is a situation that we can imagine in many different kinds of situations where you have a statue, and uh, live visitors. And in this logic, if this is the right word, she says, uh, this logic of call and response, um, wouldn't response in reverse initiate the hail as hail, she asks. So if I respond, don't don't I make it a hail? Am I not transforming it into the thing to be subsequently reiterated? Well, to this point, it starts to, be, to become really impossible to follow. Uh, so I hope you grab the beginning, and then you can go from there. Um, so, but that's the thing itself, the thing of the, the complication of trying to, to think. It gets to a blur. Uh, and, of course, we can separate it. There is a whole legislation about the difference between where live and dead things begin and end. But that's not how, it, how we experience it. And that's not how it happens, actually. It uh, overflows any um, borders. So... Through this hand-hail, Rebecca was trying to think whether the cave-hand, if it wasn't originally a hail, how it does become one, even illegitimately, by virtue of response. If I fundamentally recognize the Paleolithic hand because I also have one, she asked, and if I recognize the gesture of the palm because I also have or make one, does liveness as a matter of exchange exists and exists in repetition, in call and response, and therefore manifests a a continuity of duration that is almost beyond imagination. So that's where we are now, beyond imagination, uh, where it really starts to... Especially when you are listening and I am reading, it becomes really difficult to follow and boring and... uh, all kinds of forms of exhaustion that happen in these kinds of situations. Uh, Cutting short, um, in this sense, uh, a document is as much of the future as it is of the past. Now, but if we uh, go back to this uh, thinking of how the, well, performance as an artistic form and performance as a performance as a, a self performing subject that has to perform herself himself every day in many different situations and show some degree high degree of efficacy <laughs> and also creativity because it's not the thing is it's not uh, anymore about efficacy it's about uh, performing Creativity all the time, being creative, um, and so this uh, this compulsion to install performance as the new ethos, the new existence, form of existence for everybody. I mean, it has something to do also with this. This expansion of the category of the live, the fact that this this uh, performative turn that we can um, we can see happening in a very promising way, welcome way that allows us to rethink uh, the archive and documents and theory and knowledge making as uh, a time based. Uh, field of operations that is something that has effects as it happens and then also then when it stops and where, when it's kept somewhere. It's something that is uh, at its very core performative, always depending on an addressee, a response, right? And it produces effects in different situations. It has uh, afterlives... And, well, it's really difficult to to set the frontiers between the the liveliness and the pastness and the presentness of something. And it goes for everything, and even for these supposedly uh, more stable instances, the things that we were used to to qualify with uh, stability. so that's the the, count, the downside or the counterpart is that this expansion of the category of the live I mean somehow it blurs with this uh, compulsion or this pressure to embark in this performative and performance mode uh I mean for me there is really something very disturbing in this how you see of course it's a um a simplistic way to put it is how uh, whatever formulas or um, interesting complex issues that any field of knowledge and uh, practice is producing is constantly being co-opted by the wild (laughs) neoliberal capitalist system, the sensual, aesthetic, creative, cognitive one. And it goes faster and faster, this appropriation, of course, because of mm, social networking and the use that we make, the integration of uh, hyper-performative technologies in our daily lives, which I'm not against because I'm also a, I'm in it and I cannot escape it. But I would like to... So she uh, herself, Rebecca Schneider, asks, what is our investment in live art right now? Because we see well, you from dance mainly, we all assisted and are still seeing how all of a sudden dance became the, um, the art form to have in museums, in libraries, and um, everywhere. And so there's, there's to a certain extent really an interesting exchange that obliges also the economy of the museum and of the gallery uh, to rethink their modes. Because when you, uh, when you implicate uh, people, bodies, uh, you really have to find other economies. But uh, there are really very different situations. Uh, but... Well, there's really a field of problematic that is uh, not solved. (laughs) And I don't think it will ever be. It's just, well, I don't know what I want to say exactly um, right now about this. But it's something to be attentive to the ways in which it's happening. And just not get too excited about it. Because on the one hand, it, uh, it provides for new... Uh, workspace and that's a good thing and that's interesting really to uh, have these encounters between different formats Um, but I'm uh, reaching the end, I think it's time right? More than time so I'll just play some short sounds, maybe we could uh, uh, put the lights down or just to...
1: being followed and pursued by something. And I could feel that there was somebody behind.
2: Them. I was running and I was being chased. Well, I'm running down the street, into a house, through the house,
1: down the stairs, out the back. And I was being chased. Faster and faster.
2: And I ran for all I was worth. My clothes were dragging me back.
1: I was running away. I was running. And I ran. So
3: I ran along the corridor and I ran up the stairs. I keep running up these stairs and round the corner. I sometimes run down the stairs into the corridor and I keep running and running and running.
2: My legs wouldn't go quick enough. I couldn't get my breath to call out.
1: I was running away. I was running very, very fast somehow i couldn't stop running i was running and i fell over the mountain
2: there's a crocodile chasing me i
1: was running
2: there's a crocodile chasing me i swam as fast as i could to get away from the crocodile and the crocodile suddenly changed into a lion and then that changed into a tiger
1: the animals really i suppose don't mean to chase me but because i'm frightened and i run
3: they follow me up so i run along the corridor and I run up the stairs.
1: And uh, some great monstrous shape
2: walks towards me in the corridor.
3: And I run up the stairs.
2: And my legs wouldn't go quick enough. And
3: I keep running and running and running, running and running and running.
2: Uh, up uh, a big slope and my legs wouldn't go quick enough. I was running and I was being chased. There was somebody after me, chasing me. Up uh, a big slope, up uh, a big slope.
3: And I keep running and running and running, running and running and running. I couldn't
2: get my breath to call out. So
3: I run along the corridor and I run up the stairs.
2: And uh,
1: some great monstrous shape walks towards me in the corridor or running down the street, into a house, through the house, out the back, over there, somebody. I never see anybody. I know there's somebody behind me, probably, but I never see them. It's neither a man or a woman. It's just an enormous black shape. It's a, just a mass, a mass of something matter coming towards me, a great, big, monstrous-looking mass, not a shape just filling up the corridor. But it's neither a man or a woman, it's just enormous black shape in the corridor, filling up
2: the corridor. It's a crocodile chasing me.
1: I was running away.
2: As I ran faster, I seemed to battle against it even more. My clothes were dragging me back. My clothes were dragging me back.
1: I was running very, very fast. Somehow,
2: I couldn't stop running. I was running away. My legs wouldn't go quick enough.
3: When I run up the stairs, the stairs are wide and stone. They're nasty stairs, um, institutional stairs. And I keep running up these stairs and round the corner. I can't go right to the top. I just hide round the second corner. Uh, Hoping no one will see me, and then if I hear somebody, I sometimes run down the stairs into the corridor. And all the time, this terrible fear that I'm only in my white liberty bodies, only in my liberty bodies.
1: I'm being followed and pursued by something. I'm never quite sure what it is. feeling of running down a staircase. I can still see the staircase, a very wide staircase in an old house. Big carved banisters. They go down in short flights. At the end of each flight there's a large stained glass window and I run down the stairs faster and faster and the something which is following gets nearer and nearer and I don't know what it is I have the feeling that it's something which is about to envelop me in some way it's just this feeling of being followed and pursued